How might teachers ensure that stories of oppressed and marginalized people get taught in their classrooms? Today on the show, I speak with 2020 Prime Minister's Teaching Award recipient, Rachel Luke. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Rachel Luke is the kind of teacher that we all wish we had when we were in high school. She is dynamic, kind, compassionate, incredibly positive, and obviously loves this profession so much. But beyond her inspiring enthusiasm, Rachel is a disruptor. She uses her power as a teacher to unpack and uncover stories from marginalized groups so students deeply know and understand the past. In this conversation, we get into a lot. We talk about how and why Rachel explores the Holocaust with her students, how and why she makes sure that she addresses residential schools with every class she teaches, and how and why she intentionally builds rest into her practice as a teacher. If there is a word that is lingering with me after listening to this conversation, it is intentional. Rachel Luke is an intentional teacher that thinks carefully and critically about her power and how to use her platform as an educator for justice. I know you will love Rachel as much as I do, so let's jump right in. Rachel Luke, I am so excited to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. I'm so excited to be here. You are a big deal. You are a 2020 recipient of the Prime Minister's Teaching Award. And there's obvious reason why. After I read about you, I'm like, you sound like you're a magical teacher and made of unicorns and rainbows. So I'm so excited to get to hear more about your practice. Let's start by Thank having you. you introduce yourself. I like to have everyone say who they are, where they live, and what they teach. All right, so uh, my name is Rachel Luke, and I live in Mississauga, and I teach in the Peel District School Board. I teach at Glen Forest Secondary School, and I teach English, Dramatic Arts, and ESL, English as a Second Language. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about how your year is going because asking somebody how are they is such a loaded question, and now it's even more powerful. So let's just start. How are you doing? Well, I'm, uh, I think I'm in the midst of a bit of a burnout right now after Black History Month. Uh, we had quite a bit going on virtually and I did quite a few panels. Um, but in general, I will say that the uh, virtual learning has been a very steep learning curve. Um, for me, um, it, I mean, I'm teaching drama online, which is quite the challenge. So it has been really challenging. Yeah. Everything that I've read about you, you seem like you are just this like wonderfully bubbly, happy, joyful, active, hands-on, dynamic educator. And to then be confined to teaching little squares on a screen must be such a real challenge. So like, what are you doing? What have you figured out? Even if it's like one thing you figured out, I think that anyone listening will benefit from that. Yay. Well, you know what, to be honest with you, I've made it work. I, I feel I've made it work and my students seem to be enjoying themselves. We just finished um, our children's theater unit where I had the students adapt um, storybooks into children's theater performances. And then we went to uh, kindergarten classes virtually and we performed them for them. Oh my goodness. And it was fantastic. It was fantastic. My students loved it. The kindergarten students loved it. I mean, they did the paper by princess. They also did black narratives like don't touch my hair. Yes. Um, they did oh, all kinds of really fun stories. Uh, Hansel and Gretel, fairy tales, and 
Um, we had some fables. We had uh, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. It was fantastic. That is incredible. And to do it for a kindy class. So I'm curious though, so if it's in a kindy class, the best part about performing to four-year-olds in person is their reactions and the interaction. Did you have any kind of like audience participation when your students were doing that? We sure did. We sure did. And I told the students that they had to make sure that they inc incorporated audience participation. So, you know, throughout the show, they would ask the students questions. And I mean, they had props and costumes. The students could see them. They were asking questions as they were performing. And at the end, they asked the students what they learned from this, from the show and, you know, what they enjoyed about the show. And the kids had a blast. They loved it. And they, you know, they gave thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, should he do this? Should he keep lying? It was great. Oh it was fantastic. And so easy too to get all of your students to beam into a kindergarten class. Like, I don't know if you would have done that exact same kind of thing pre-pandemic, but it could totally be something that sticks around when we don't have to practice social distancing. We usually do it face to face, but, uh, but you know what? We made it work uh, with the virtual. So let's back up a little bit. I want to hear about your journey to becoming a teacher. When you, like, I'm just picturing, you know, little, little you running around. Did you always want to be a teacher or was it something that came to later? Like, tell me how you got into this profession. So I think I always wanted to be a teacher in the neighborhood when I was younger with my siblings. We would always play school and I was always the teacher. Yes. So oh I think it was, it was in there. Um, and then in grade two, I had a phenomenal teacher. Her name was Marissa Puglia. And she just inspired me so much. And I, I see a lot of, I see a lot of what I've done in my life. is very similar to her. You know, she had traveled a lot and I've been to 70 countries and you know, she's just amazing. And, and what I loved about her is that she, she really cared about us. You know, we felt, we knew that she loved us and she wanted the best for us. And she gave us amazing opportunities. I remember in grade two, she had me conduct our choir for our Christmas concert. Like she was incredible. Oh, cool. And then she, she would, she would take us down to the staff room uh, during class every week, I think once a week, and we would try a, a new type of food. And she would always say, you know, like never say no until you try something once. And I remember trying like rutabaga, you know, <laughs> and, and it was so awesome. She was such a wonderful person. I just, I absolutely loved her. And I think after, I think in grade two, I knew for a fact, this was going to be my career goal and my career pathway. And she really inspired me. And was and it an so easy, after, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say like, was it an easy choice when you were an adult? Like, was it go to your undergrad, go right to teacher's college? Absolutely. Yep, yeah. that's exactly what I knew the pathway. It was right through. I, I you know, I went to uh, U, U of T for my undergrad and I took uh, English and dramatic arts and history. And uh, yep, I had my, did, did my B.Ed. and I did my honor specialist and yeah, just kept going through, did my AQs. I have library and other um, subject areas, uh, additional qualifications for them. And I knew, I always knew it would be um, the career path that I wanted. And I must say, now that I'm in it for 19 years, um, I wouldn't do anything else. I absolutely love teaching. I love my job so much and I love oh. the kids. It seems like you have obviously found your calling, but found it when you were in grade two, which is quite amazing. Yes. Like it's a, one of those things where I feel like you must know yourself really well to see that as something that you're drawn to and that you're obviously really well suited for too. Thank you, Thank you so much. It was, and I thought initially that I was going to go into elementary school and um, be an elementary school teacher, but that actually changed when I was in teacher's college. And uh, I remember in grade eight, I was teaching a grade eight class and 
they asked me, what subjects do you not want to teach? And I said, math and gym. And that's exactly where they put me. Oh my and God. I went to the, the next day and I was like, high school. <laughs> and yeah. they switched me and I never looked back. That's amazing. It's like, let's, were they, like, was that intentional to say, let's see what happens when you teach the thing you're least comfortable with? Like, was it a strategy? I think it was. I think it was. And I, you know, good on them that they, they, they came up with that idea, but it sure didn't work for me because I was, uh, <laughs> I wear skirts and high heels and uh, gym class was not going to be the place for me. And um, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, no, 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 that was not for me at all. And I definitely, math is not my forte. So uh, I, that was a quick exit. (laughs) Well, I think your students are probably really happy that you made that choice because it sounds like I'm happy I made the choice. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the cool stuff you do. So I was most taken aback by the work that you're doing around Jewish education as a woman who's not Jewish. So this has been like a really interesting part of your practice where I was, you know, reading about you and watching videos about you and you were teaching in a school and nobody had really heard of the Holocaust. You were teaching Anne Frank and obviously it stood out to you as it should. And so you took it on as your mission to take this on as your personal cause, to include stories about the Holocaust, Jewish figures in your teaching. And you do so many other things, obviously, but it is really remarkable that this isn't part of your identity and it's not part of your students' identities. Why for you, in your own words, is it important for you to teach your students about the Jewish story? Um, so when I was, uh, I think I was 13, my mom showed me uh, a video. I remember she showed it to our youth group at church and we watched, it was The Hiding Place uh, with Corey Ten Boom. And it really had a, a profound impact on me. I, at that point, I didn't know what the Holocaust was. That was the first time I'd learned about it. And um, just seeing the cruelty that people could inflict, one person could inflict on another person, I think really stunned me. I, I, I was really, I was shocked, but I was also, um, it really disturbed me that such a horrible thing could happen. And uh, that's when I said, you know what, I have to make sure students, you know, we, we always say, you know, lest we forget. I remember with Remembrance Day and different things, we always say, you know, like, may it never happen again unless we forget. But if students don't know what the past was and what happened in the past, then, um, you know, that, uh, that kind of a comment doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. So when I started teaching, I thought, you know, what I really want my students to understand what the Holocaust was and what happens when hate goes unchecked and when um, one person or people have power over another uh, group of people. Uh, what, you know, what kind of damage can be done. So that's when I started to teach my students, uh, as soon as I started teaching, actually, I started teaching students about the Holocaust. And as you said, they had no idea what it was. They'd never heard about the Holocaust. And I found that very troubling, of course. And I continued uh, to this day uh, to teach students. I bring Holocaust survivors in uh, to speak to the students and the staff every year. And I teach books like The Better Than Frank, Ellie Wiesel's Night. In my drama classes, we do all kinds of, um, you know, work with uh, theater of the oppressed and monologues. And the students are really, uh, they, they really feel connected. Um, I find it's a really good way in also to talk about other groups that are oppressed and genocide. And uh, even though I don't have Jewish students in my school, the students the students are really, really connected. They, they, they're shocked at first, but then after they say, you know what, yeah, what can we do? What can we do to stop hatred? What can we do um, to 
to make sure that we are fighting for social justice and taking mm -hmm. a stand for social justice. And it's really incredible. And, um, and I've seen students really develop um, respect for others and show compassion and understand the strength of human spirit, uh, the, the human spirit, you know, because within the Holocaust, there's so many lessons. And when we talk about the righteous of the nature, you know, people that put their lives at risk to, to save one person, uh, it's it's really quite an incredible, incredible narrative and incredible stories that can be told. Do you ever get worried or concerned when you're teaching about an identity group that you don't exist in about not getting it right or misunderstanding something as an outsider? Like I often grapple with this as, you know, a cis white woman whenever I'm sharing anything with my students that is not about my own experience. And I'm sometimes like to the point of being hyper careful of not wanting to get it wrong. Does that ever cripple you? Do like, how do you address that as an educator? I, I make sure that I ground myself in the knowledge and in the work. So I, I've been to Holocaust concentration. I've been to concentration camps. I have done studies. I went to Israel for three and a half weeks on a scholarship, uh, and did a course at Yad Vashem. And I've spoken to Holocaust survivors. I have done the work so when I speak to students and when I share this, I feel that I have enough knowledge and I can always bring others in because there's a ton of Holocaust uh, organizations in Toronto that you can reach out to that can provide you with the materials. But I just make sure that I understand what I'm teaching and I understand the stories. And I think when you come at, when you come at teaching from narratives and stories, it's a little bit easier. And so, no, to be honest, I never, I never feel like Oh, I, I might say the wrong thing or I might get it wrong. Um, with my students, I'm very honest. I tell them, you know, just like you, I'm exploring. I'm trying to, to share information with you. I want you to uh, do the same thing. And so, you know, I no, I'm never worried about uh, will I make a mistake or will I say something that's that's wrong. People ask me that all the time in terms of um, teaching about anti-black racism uh, or dismantling anti-black racism, you know, uh, or just teaching about black narratives. And I I don't have a problem with that at all. I would much rather a student sits in a classroom and learns about uh, a group of people that they don't know about, learns about oppression and what they can do to help to dismantle. Um, oppressive behaviors than a teacher work. You know, I'm, I'm much more concerned about, I would be much happier to see a teacher go into a classroom and try to do that than worry about, oh, maybe I didn't say it right or maybe it's not my story to tell or something like that. Yeah, I, I hope that there's in the future more teachers that are taking on this work too, so that if one teacher perhaps has like some research incorrect, like I don't think that that necessarily should be a barrier, but that the multitude of voices can kind of even out the story so that it's not just you one teacher. That. Yeah. Yes. I love that you said that because I think it's important for us always to remember with any story that one story is one story of a lot of stories, right? And so, you know, your teacher might come into your classroom or a teacher might go into a classroom and share a narrative but it's one narrative of many, many narratives. Yeah, like it, they can't just be in your class where they learn about the Jewish experience. Like they can't just read the book that you can be like, yeah, got it, I, I did I that, it. checked yeah. that off. Yeah. yeah, it has to be so many more voices and stories. Like I used to teach the book Thief in grade seven and my co-teacher and I were like, we actually probably should do a bit of a primer on what was the Holocaust. And we realized that, yeah, even, in our school, there's still students who don't know. And so it has to be more than 
one teacher. That's right. And also it's very important for teachers to contextualize. I, you know, you said, you know, we need to do a primer. We need to make sure the students kind of understand what this work is grounded in or where the store, the context of the story. Um, and I think a lot of teachers don't do that. And I think that's problematic. We must contextualize uh, stories. We must contextualize, contextualize narratives so students have an understanding of the whole picture uh, when they're reading uh, content, when they're reading a story. As an educator and mentor in young people's lives, do you ever have to interrupt misinformation that your students are sharing? Like if they don't know any other Jewish people or if they're in this community, like do you ever have to say like, actually, that's not factually accurate or actually that's a misunderstanding. Like, do you actively interrupt or what do you do when you hear something that you're like, nope, not okay. I absolutely do just that. Nope, <laughs> not okay. I am definitely an interrupter. I am a dismantler. Um, I'm an anti-racist educator. So um, I think students know that very well. So I often don't have to interrupt because <laughs> will interrupt. don't have to around me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Walking around me. How would you do that though? I think that some teachers worry about shaming that one kid who's saying something inappropriate and then just don't because they're like, ah, I don't want to like make him feel worse for that thing that he said. Like, give me a moment where you maybe did do that before that, you know, like you, perhaps you had the reputation for being the kind of teacher who yes. wouldn't stand for that. <laughs> so how would you, how would you handle a student who is saying something that you're like, no, that's not okay. Right. Um, so we had an incident and as I said, it doesn't happen very often, but, uh, there was an incident where a student was trying to, uh, we were going to have a Holocaust sur uh, survivor come in and the student wanted to bring up about the Arab Israeli conflict and, uh, that, that, that kind of politics. And, you know, we very gently said, you know, this is not appropriate. This is not the forum and this is not the place for that conversation and explained that you know there are there are opposing viewpoints and there are multiple perspectives and there's a time and place for those conversations mm -hmm. and so um and very gently and very politely did that and i think the student understood it and in my class when things like that happen if, if anything happens if a student is saying just making a sweeping generalization about a group of people um yeah i just i just take that moment in class to make it a teachable moment and i say actually you know what that's that's not correct you know and we need to be really careful about making sweeping generalizations about people um because that's where stereotypes are born that's where racism is born that's how oppression um can get pa more power so i yeah i don't have a problem just saying to students and stopping a student and i really i think in my classroom i really try to make it a safe space so that a student doesn't feel that they're being singled out or picked on, we're all in it together. Yeah, you know, and that's really what I tried to develop in my classroom because if you don't call it out, it's worse. Yeah, it's really yeah, it's really bad. I had a student uh, who experienced a microaggression in her classroom, and um, she came to me after to tell me about it. She was very upset because the teacher, I think, didn't know how to shut it down, so they didn't shut it down, mm. which was actually worse for both the students that experienced the microaggression and then the other students in the class that witnessed it. Um, exactly. So that's terrible, right? We need to make sure we have to remember, it's not just the two students that might be involved with the one student, but there are 30 other bodies in that classroom mm. that are internalizing what you did. First of all, what was said and then what you as an educator did. Yeah. Yeah. Them a very powerful message. 
I kind of feel like we need training on this as educators, like to literally practice and role play standing up and saying in a compassionate and non-judgmental way, like you were giving the example with that student, actually, this is this is the way that we are. People like us do things like this, like just bringing them forward and helping them make a better choice or say kinder words. It, I think I'll, in general, we as teachers today, I find we, we have a responsibility to, to help our students understand because there's so many things that I feel either they're not being taught or they just don't know. And, and I'm talking about even very simple things just in terms of, of manners and in terms of you know what is appropriate and not appropriate. A lot of times when I call my students on things, they, they're really surprised. Like, oh, Miss, I didn't realize that wasn't appropriate or it's, it's not okay to say that. Yeah. So I find that really interesting that I, yeah, I really do feel sometimes like I'm a parent in the classroom because I'm teaching students things that they don't know, that they shouldn't. Yeah. yeah. And like when you, I was just like actually imagining you interrupting your students and a student, another student, a bystander student watching that moment is getting a living example of how to stand up to hatred or discrimination or racism, like when you actually watch somebody do it in a compassionate, non-shaming way, it gives everybody else in that room tools for how to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, and it's so important. I was teaching an ESL class, uh, the book Refugee by Alan Gratz. I don't know if yeah. you know. Uh, so they're interesting because they're from Syria. It's a, a group of Syrian students. They, they would get really excited when it was Mahmoud's story and it was about the Syrian. But when it was the Jewish story about Joseph, they weren't as engaged. And sometimes they would, you know, whisper or start talking. And so we had to have a conversation about, you know, we want, we, we want to be excited about Mahmoud's story and we want to understand what happened to the Syrians and we want to hear their narrative and their story. But, you know, they have to reciprocate, right? We need to also hear other stories. We need to hear the Jewish story as well and be excited about that story and, and understanding and learning about that history. And after a few students came to me and they said, Miss, I'm really glad we read this book. You know, there are things that I've learned about in my family or my culture or my religion um, that's, you know, not necessarily, um, how do I say this in a very diplomatic way? Um, you know, that, that is not necessarily the right thing in terms of looking at another culture, another group of people. And uh, so I was really happy. I was really happy that they, they learned from that experience. Yeah, it's like, one of my teaching colleagues would say that literature can be either windows into other experiences or mirrors to look at our own. And so even just to say like, maybe this part of the book is a mirror and this other part of the book is a window and they both are teaching us things. Yeah. So you do so many cool things and obviously the list just goes on and on. Like it's clear why you won this award. And again, like huge congratulations. Um, I read that you're collaborating with an indigenous residential school survivor to write a play based on his memoir. I want to know everything. Tell me what is going on with that and when do I get to see slash read it? The residential school survivor's name is Theodore Fontaine and he wrote a memoir called Broken Circle. And he came into our school to do a presentation for some of our grade 12 students and shared his story of his experiences in residential schools. And uh, it's a very moving, moving story. I highly recommend it if you have an opportunity to read it against Broken Circle. Um, very difficult read, but um, I think a very necessary and important read because just like Holocaust education, the majority of our students do not know that we had residential schools. They have no idea what the story of the indigenous peoples of Canada is they don't know anything about it 
and um, which to me is frightening. Mm -hmm. So he came in, he, he shared his story and I went to him and I said, you know, that was absolutely incredible. I would love to have the opportunity to, um, to try to use some parts of your memoir in my drama classroom. You know, mm -hmm. I said, maybe have some students do some monologues or things like that. So he says, well, why don't you just adapt it into a play? I said, really? And he said, yeah. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. So I spent a summer um, writing the play. And so I've completed the first draft. And since COVID, it's been a little bit of a challenge, but I'm on the second draft right now. And uh, he read through, we did a read through of the first draft. He absolutely loved it. It was so exciting. And our, the hope was that I would have some of my drama students perform it so that he could critique and we could kind of flesh it out a little bit more. Uh, but that hasn't happened since uh, COVID. But I am hoping that we're going to get that second draft done and maybe a third draft and then hopefully have the uh, adaptation completed. Oh my goodness, I have a million follow-up questions. So do you have, like, when he said, maybe you should just turn it into a play, had you written plays before this? I know you have a drama background, but was this something that was already in your wheelhouse, writing plays? Um, so I've, I've written plays, but not, uh, like, not to have them published or anything like that. Like, I did a lot of writing for our youth group at church and do you know, church plays and things like that. And, uh, but no, this was the first time that it was, sort of this this big in terms of adapting a story into a play and um it was it was really uh, it was eye-opening i learned so much i thought i knew quite a bit about mm. what happened to the indigenous peoples in canada i thought i knew a lot about residential schools but boy after this experience i learned a whole lot more um that i did not know and i make sure in every single one of my classes that i do at least one lesson i don't care what the course is or what the um subject area is I will do one or two lessons specifically just on residential schools and on uh, what what happened to Indigenous peoples in Canada. Canada we have such a responsibility to oh. look at it and name it and explore it. And again, like the more teachers that unpack this, the more clear we are able to look at ourselves and at history more fully. Like you can't understand what it means to be a Canadian if you don't look at that history. Absolutely. And you'd be surprised with the feedback from the students. It was just, it was incredible to me. I, I, I was teaching in the Peel Online School in the first quadrimester and I showed uh, We Were Children and I did a, a lesson and we did a secret path and I did a lesson on, um, on residential schools and the, the feedback in their journals was so powerful to me. Some, some, I was crying with some of the stuff I was reading. I was, saying, I was so angry. Miss. I can't believe this happened in Canada. I can't believe I didn't know this. It was incredible. And that was a grade 11 class and they'd never heard of residential schools. One student in the class of 30 had heard about it. Yeah. So while you're going through this memoir and putting it together as a playwright, like what's standing out to you? Like what is sticking out to you about this story? I'm just, again, you know, like the Holocaust uh, story. I just, I just can't believe the the, the cruelty, human cruelty, um, you know, to take children from their parents, uh, to take them into, you know, schools where they actually weren't even taught and to abuse them and to hurt them and the generational trauma that has resulted from this. I mean, it just blows my mind. It blows my mind and it, yeah. it's, it's hurtful. It's, um, it's, it's, it's unfathomable that something like this happened in Canada. And I find it, uh, I know my responsibility is to make sure that I teach it 
and then I help students and anyone that comes to my classroom understand this history and, and know what happened. I, it's, it's interesting because in hearing you say that back, I've reflected that there is this piece of me that is shocked that it happened in Canada as well. And I, I wonder if in like 10, 15 years, that goes away. Like if that's the litmus test that we've actually done our jobs as educators to show that Canadians are not any better anymore with it. And just because we have this reputation as being kind and polite, that these atrocities are human and these atrocities are a scar on our humanity, but they're not unique to Germany. They're not unique to Rwanda. They're not unique to the South of the US. This is like dehumanizing other people is something that's happened across time and it's not dependent on geography. What I find most scary though, I mean, you say like, I hope in 15 years, but I mean, we have to realize that some of this trauma is still happening today. Yeah, you know, yeah, like you know, there are still a lot of indigenous people who aren't who don't have access to clean water, mm-hmm. and you know, we have the missing and murdered um, women that this continues today. To today, it, it's just um, it's so sad that in 2021 we still have um, these very negative things happening to indigenous people and to blacks, right? Anti-black racism again, and Jews, anti-Semitism is on the rise. Um, where does it end? Where does it end? And, you know, what can we do to, to make change? Mm -hmm. I think it's amazing how you're using the power you have as an educator to do something. You know, I think that this is actually how change happens by one educator, inspiring another educator, inspiring somebody else to realize I can do something like, what can I do? I can read this book. I can share something with my students. I can listen to this podcast. I can talk about this differently. Like to actually use the platform you have as an educator to do something. Yeah, thank you very much. And I I absolutely do that on a daily basis. And I wish more educators would because we have tremendous power in the classroom. We choose, right? We choose what we're gonna prioritize. We choose what we're gonna teach. So um, I think it's it's imperative and it's, um, we are responsible to give, provide knowledge because knowledge is power and that's what we can give to our students. This chapter of teaching and learning is obviously, I think, the hardest chapter that we've ever encountered as professionals. What, if anything, do you want to keep after the pandemic is long over? Like, what do you want to retain from this year of teaching into the future? I will say when I, when I was actually in the classroom, I felt that uh, a lot of times it was very much go, 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 go. And I found that even though it's, it's still go, 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 uh, virtually, uh, I slowed down a little bit and I, uh, you know, I really sort of, I look at the stuff that I was doing in the classroom and I've had a, I've had an opportunity to sort of rethink things and uh, slow things down. And because our students are really struggling in terms of anxiety, a lot of our students are struggling in terms of mental health and well-being. I found that I've taken more time. I'm a little, I'm, you know, I'm taking time with them, more time than I usually would, um, asking them how they're doing, I'm checking in. And I, I wanna continue that. I think that's been very important and that's been a good learning, uh, that's been a good learning for me that um, we don't know what the students are coming into the classroom with. And I think sometimes 
they're so cerebral. They sit in class and they smile and we think everything's great. And we just sort of plug on through with our subject uh, material. But during the pandemic, I've been able to see a lot of the students and talk to them after class and, and see that they've been going through a really tough time. And, and I've, I think been a lot more compassionate. And, um, and I think even though I tried very hard, even when I'm teaching face-to-face, to be supportive and helpful, I think I've done that a better job of that mm. during this pandemic and, and the virtual learning and teaching. So I do want to continue to do that. I hope we all continue that. That's such a good outcome of this terrible time. How are you taking care of yourself? Because again, you're writing this play, you're actively doing all these things right now for your students. I like, you're just such a full on teacher. So what are you doing? And again, if you don't have the answers, we understand, but what are you doing to take care of Rachel right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not always very good with balancing, especially we just had Black History Month and I was doing a lot of uh, uh, panels and webinars. And so I'm feeling a little bit burnt out right now. But usually I'm very good with my spa trips. Um, so now <laughs> I'm doing spas for myself since I can't go to yep. spa. At home spa. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, I do, you know, I try to get in, I try to sleep at a, a decent hour. And I, um, yeah, that's how I take care of myself. And I'm, I'm very active in my church community. And so when I go to church, I feel very energized and renewed and have a wonderful family and siblings and um, a church family. So, uh, you know, stopping and talking to them. And um, I just, uh, you know, that's how I, that's how I, I re-energize myself. I also take a year off every five years. I do Good for you. Yes, yeah, that's so I do awesome. Every five and it's amazing. Amazing! Yes. I travel. I was going to say because you've been to seventy countries. I'm like, yes. how do you have time to go to seventy countries? So that is incredible. Tell me everything. All right. So yes, I take a year off every five years, and um, my last year off was incredible. I I actually visited a former student who's an architect in Qatar. So it was wonderful. So I went to Qatar, Dubai, and Abu Dhabi incredible uh i also teach abroad so i teach in uh, shanghai and hong kong in july i hope that happens again sometime yeah. soon i teach esl students with a private school there and um and then i just i just have great fun and travel i went to belize i went to uh thailand i went to vietnam and mm. um, oh it's just incredible so i really really and I, that's my time for re-energizing myself it's yes. really great i get away from the, the classroom and the strain and and then I go back and I'm re-energized. Guys, let's do this. How about this? Think about this. It's so exciting. It's like so, the summer, but multiplied by like 10. That's so that's right. good. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I can imagine that by doing so much traveling too, you just have such a wonderful perspective on how humans live. Like you just see Absolutely. things from a very wholesome perspective. Like this is how the world you know is, everybody. Absolutely. It's made me a better teacher. It's made me a much better teacher because I understand my students. I understand their faiths. I understand their culture. I understand their food. I love their food. Um, it's just been, it's, it's really been a great way for me to, as you said, learn about other people, learn about other cultures and other histories. And it's really nice when I can go back to the classroom and say, oh, I went to Dubai and I got on this. I'm from Dubai. You know, really awesome. It's really yeah. awesome. It's uh it's a really wonderful part about our profession that like you can have time in the summer to go travel, but that you can also structure your life so that you can take these four over fives or you can have longer extended times away. Did you know that when you got into teaching, you're like, okay, I'm going to 
sign up for the four because most schools or most school boards will have like kind of a four over five package where if people are listening don't know you work for four years at a reduced salary and then like you're essentially getting money put aside for you so that you still get paid when you're on the year was that always in your head when you got started it was because I had a colleague who told me about it right away when I first started teaching. Yeah. You have to do this. And I said, I will. <laughs> so um, I actually waited uh, for my first 10 years. I did it after my first, uh, the first one was after 10 years and then five after that. Um, and I'm glad because I think uh, if I had done it after the first five, it's not enough time. Yeah. I think it would have been too soon. So the after 10 was great. Uh, so it, it's just been incredible. I've already signed up for the next one. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so I, I can't recommend it enough. If you can afford to do it and if you have time to do it as a teacher, there are no words, no mm -hmm. words describe uh, what it's like to just be able to breathe and be on your own time and uh, just really enjoy yourself. It's, it's really wonderful. It's, it's such a draining profession. Everyone listening to this knows that. Oh. And it's such a profession that it will take whatever we're willing to give. Like there is no end, there's no stopping point. So, you know, for you, who's obviously a creative teacher, it's not like you're just going in there and teaching from a textbook, like you're inventing, you're building, you're playing, and you need to have that time where you are playful and exploring so that you can come back refreshed to the profession. Because I give, like, I give a hundred percent every day. Like, I think you give more than a hundred percent. I feel like, see, like, I mean, this is why you got this award because you're giving like 400%, like you're crushing it. Uh, and I just, I, I feel so bad to say no, you know, the, the students need us. I, I keep, you know, I've, I've just taken my guidance qualifications because um, really I, I feel like I've been an unofficial guidance counselor. The students know they can come to me and I will be there for them and I will support them. So I feel like even beyond the classroom, I do the classroom work, but I do a lot of extracurriculars. I'm doing extracurriculars even virtually with the pandemic going on. I'm still doing that. Mm -hmm. And I'm still trying to be there for those students that need an ear. I need a teacher to, to listen and to help and support. So um, yeah, there are days where I, I definitely need to, or years when I need to kind of step back and just have some me time, mm -hmm. but I'm ready to go right back in as soon as I'm back in. So other than obviously becoming a guidance counselor, which would be amazing for you, what do you, what do you want to do? What's on the horizon now that you have like, you know, so many years under your belt now, you've got this great award, you can kind of like build yourself up, like other than becoming an amazing edu celebrity, which I will be your first follower for, not your first, <laughs> clearly of many, but what do you, what do you hope to do in your career? That's a great question. A lot of people keep on trying to uh, keep pushing me to get my PQP so that I can become an administrator. But do you want to do that? Because it's such a different thing than teaching. It is. Um, I'm going to get the qualifications, but to be really honest with you, I love the classroom and I really yeah. don't know if I see myself um, in an in administrator's role. Uh, I love the kids too much. That's, that, that's what brings me the joy. So I think I'm going to probably be that teacher that uh, just continues teaching until retirement. And then I'm going to have like a whole other life <laughs> traveling <laughs> more countries traveling yes yeah. yes yes um yeah so i i would like to get you know i have my library qualification so i wouldn't mind switching it up a little bit in terms of subject areas and do a little bit of guidance a little bit of library continue with drama um we've just uh, been approved our school has just approved two black history courses which i'll be teaching in the fall which yes. i'm so excited to teach so i just for me i feel if i can switch it up a little bit every year and make it a little bit you know fun and exciting something mm -hmm. new 
then I'm, I'm still very engaged. So. Yeah. I love that your school will be teaching two courses on black history. Will they both happen at the same time or is it one fall, one winter? How does that work? They're actually happening at the same time. So one is a grade 11 um, course and the other one is a grade 12 course. And uh, we've been trying for this for many, many years. And we finally have been able to, uh, to get these two courses. And I just, I really hope they run, you know, the students have just selected their courses and I was really, really pushing students saying, you need to take this. I'm yeah. so excited to teach it. It's so exciting. Um, I just, I know it's going to make a difference for the young people to understand uh, Canadian black history. Yeah, that's huge. And is it just Canadian black history or do you look at everything North America wise? Like what is the, tell me the scope. Sure. So it is actually specifically black, uh, black history and uh, dismantling anti-black racism. Really. So um, it is looking at uh, a variety of, of people, of trailblazers and uh, the history of uh, blacks in Canada and um, inventors and uh, all kinds of really interesting things, um, you know, but I, I'm going to do the pre as well. So before we even got to Canada, you know, what happened and where, where were we and, you know, the, the histories in Africa and then, uh, you know, what happened when we got here and what have we contributed and uh, what were the struggles, but also what were the triumphs. So, That's so important. Like that actually should be mandatory. Like there needs to be, if it's not its own mandatory course, then a serious portion of history classes that are devoted to this because if students are not going through and learning this, it, and it can't just be through the month of February, if students are not actually learning this within their regular curriculum, we will have students who just have these really unfortunate holes and gaps in their understanding of what it means to be a Canadian. Just like, you know, the kids who didn't know what the Holocaust was or people who don't know what the residential school story is. Like, we have a responsibility to teach this. If it's not in a course in your school, I hope teachers listening see that they have a responsibility to include it in some way, not just in February. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I'm really glad you said that. And thank you for teaching those courses. Do you get to design the content? Like, do you get to build the curriculum or is it like, <gasps> whoa, that's a huge job though too. Like, oh my gosh, like, of course you need to have time to rest and sleep too, I hope. I do have some colleagues though in other schools who have already started teaching the course. So we do have a basic curriculum, but then we can build on that curriculum. And uh, as I said, I have some fantastic teachers in other schools in Peel who are teaching it and they promised to meet with me and to support and help me as I, uh, as I begin this new journey. So I'm so excited. Will you, like, I was trying to find you on social media. I don't know if you're active on there, but I, I want, I want this to be documented somehow, like for there to be some kind of like blog that you're sharing, like not, of course, I don't need to put more things on your plate because your plate is very full, but I would love just to be like a fly on the wall to like see how that happens, see the looks on your students' faces as they're like discovering things, to like hear your reflections. If you ever wanted to just like, you know, start a vlog, I'd follow you in a heartbeat. Okay, I'll have to work on that. I'm not very good with social media, too busy for that, but uh, yeah, no, and also, actually we got an invitation from CBC because they were in my class last week when my students were performing for the kindergarten students. They came to interview the students, and so they would like to um, do something uh, yeah. when we start that course. I'm excited for that as well. That is exactly what the CBC should do, so that I can just watch it, and you don't have to do any extra work. They can just show up, document, and then you just be your amazing self, and I can learn from you. I would love to. I'm so excited. I've had some teachers already reaching out and saying, I'm teaching this course as well. You know, is there some way we can get supports? And as soon as I have it up and running, I do hope to be able to work alongside some other colleagues and support other teachers who would like to teach these courses in their schools. 
okay, so maybe what I should do, like obviously CBC is going to share, but I will reach out to you in a year from now after you've done that course and we'll have you back on the podcast and then we'll do a million and two follow-up questions about how the course. Sounds good. Love it. Hey, booking it a year in advance. I love it. Okay. So the last thing that we do in our conversations is a ticket out the door, just like every great teacher, you get every last drop of learning from people. Um, Random questions. You cannot prepare for them. Are you ready for the ticket out the door? I'm ready. Okay. What is the best gift you ever received as a teacher? The best gift I ever received as a teacher was a student gave me a music box that was a dolphin with a, a gold nose. The nose was actually like a 14 karat gold nose. Oh my goodness. <laughs> do you still have it? Is it I do. Oh, I certainly it. do. That's yes, beautiful. I do. I do. What do many people get wrong or misunderstand about you? Oh, that's really good. So I think a lot of people think I'm, uh, I'm told sometimes that I'm intimidating. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I think because I'm so confident, but uh, I think people don't know. I'm, I'm actually very, very tenderhearted and I'm very, uh, and I can be very, very sensitive. Um, and I don't know if that always comes through, but um, I think people think that I'm, uh, yeah, they, they think I'm intimidating sometimes. And I don't think I am. I don't think you are. You're lovely and like you. people can't see your face right now, but you have the most beautiful glowing smile. Like oh, thank you can't you. be intimidated when they see you smile. Thank you. Uh, you are a drama person, so I have to ask this. What is your favorite musical of all time? I loved Hamilton. I loved Hamilton. I actually showed it to my students this year so and we did an amazing assignment with it in drama. It, it blew me away. It actually blew me away. How many I times have you amazing. seen it on Disney Plus? Seven. Yes. That's the right answer. Do you know Hamilton was the last musical I saw before the lockdown? Like it was like the Tuesday before we shut everything oh. down on Friday. It was, I, so I'm just very happy that I got to see it. You shot in Toronto? Yeah. Toronto? Yeah. I would oh. never be able to afford to see it anywhere else. But oh. Yeah. Yeah. My sister lives in New York and every single time I went down, we tried to get tickets on Broadway and we, it was always sold out. We yeah. never got in. And then I had tickets uh, for May for <gasps> Toronto. So no. I didn't get to see it live. I think actually the Disney Plus is better though because you can see the spit. Like I think that the spit moment for me was like, oh, I would never be able to see that. Yes. Okay, what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Pray. Mm. First thing I do is pray. Yeah. That is actually the best answer. Most people just check their phones. That's nope, nope. No, that's way. That's well after. (laughs) The phone is always dead in somewhere in my in my room or in a purse somewhere. I love that. What is the last thing you do before you go to bed? Pray. Yeah. With intention that says so much about you that like you begin your day and you end your day intentionally. And with great uh, gratefulness. Yeah. Appreciation. What is the most recent TV show you binged and loved? So I don't watch television. I actually don't own a TV and I never have owned a TV and I don't watch TV. This makes a lot of sense. This is how you get stuff done. I love this. This is amazing. Okay. Pie or cake? Cake. Beach or mountains? <gasps> Beach. Spring or fall? Spring. What would be your last meal on earth? I love it. A shawarma. <gasps> yes. Yes. A shawarma. I love, love, love Middle Eastern food. Okay, you are going to start your own educational podcast. Who are your first three guests? Oh, love it. Okay, first. Okay, so it would have to be Marissa Puglia, my grade two teacher. She'd be in there. Yes. Um, educational podcast, or like that. Um, 
got to find some other education. Maybe Rosemary Sadlier, uh, that she used to, she's the former um, uh, president of the Ontario Black History Society. I'd have her in. And who else would I have? Educators, educators. Oh, there's so many good ones. Um, hmm. What else would I have? You know, I think I probably have my. I think I'd have a student in. Mm. I'd have a yeah. student in. Yeah, yeah. I'd have a student. I will definitely subscribe to that futuristic podcast. Okay. <laughs> okay. The last thing I need from you, tell everybody, what do you think is the future of learning? Um, the future of learning, I think, is for us as teachers to learn as much from our students as we teach. I think that's really important. I think that doesn't happen enough. I've learned so much from students. And I think when we can have more of a collaborative uh, environment in the classroom where we're actually learning from students and they're learning from each other. Uh, I think our classrooms would be better spaces and I think it would be um, much more productive and it would be beneficial for teachers because they would learn a lot from their students. Mm, that is a perfect note to end on. I just want to come into your classroom and not be weird about it and just be your student for the rest of the year. I don't know if your principals would let that happen, but you're incredible. And thank you so much for sharing yourself with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. A big thank you to Rachel Luke for sharing her practice and giving us a window into her classroom. If you think someone you know would also love Rachel like we do, then share this episode with them. And if you know of other amazing educators doing cool stuff like Rachel, reach out to me on Twitter at teach underscore tomorrow or on Instagram, I'm at teaching underscore tomorrow. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep disrupting the status quo. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.